Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Candid Crack. Today, we have our first guest from, uh, not Serene, but from Singapore. Serene, how are you? I am great today. Um, let's dive straight into this. Tell me a little bit more about your background, Serene, and who you are. Well, um, my name is Serene, and I've always said that that is the wrong name for me, because Serene sounds like calm, peaceful, and obviously, I'm anything but. Uh, so I've had like five or six different um, careers in my life. Uh, just to give you an idea, I'm, in, I'm a management consultant, obviously a coach. Um, but also I'm a certified clinical exercise physiologist. I'm a nutritionist. Uh, I'm a psychologist. So I actually have a lot of different background. Um, and that's something that I think it's fun. But at the same time, I think also that is confusing, especially for myself. Yes. Well, talk about confusion then. So try to explain to, to us uh, what you do at the moment. Well, I mean, due to last year's COVID, I kind of realized this. I realized that um, I don't need half as much as I think I do. And so I don't need to uh, be on the, um, the red race uh, as much as I do. And so having given myself all that much time, I realized I should probably do something a little bit better for the world. And what I've decided to do is to do something I call conscious business, which really is about doing business, not just for the money. Obviously, it has to be for the money, but also for um, the people around you, the society, as well as for the planet. And that's something I think is doable for businesses. Most business leaders have multiple um, you know, KPIs, multiple targets anyway. So what is you know, adding two or three more different considerations into your decision making? So that's what I'm trying to advocate right now, both in my consultancy and in my coaching work. But what, what do you mean by the word conscious in conscious business, Serene? Um, that, that's different from the way most people are doing things at the moment. Well, I guess being conscious, literally as the word says, right? Being conscious of the impact and the consequences of our decisions. I think oftentimes when we make a decision at work, it's really literally about how can I hit my numbers? Um, how can I get this thing done now? But we don't think about if I do this, is there any impact beyond just my business alone or beyond just getting this deal? And what is the impact beyond this on my people, um, on the society and on the planet? So that's what I mean by being conscious. Literally, it's just um, a, a deeper consideration of what we are actually doing. And that to me is conscious business. So, so why, why uh, taking a, a, a sort of what a standard executive might say, well, why should I care about that impact? I'm here to deliver numbers. That's the only reason I'm here. So, so what's the why of that impact? Why, why should they care? I think there is two whys in that. Uh, the first why is that caring actually impacts your bottom line. Uh, obviously, when I say this, a lot of people say, ah, see, you know, it, it all goes on the bottom line anyway. But a lot of the evidence shows that um, giving, you know, not caring about it upfront actually causes a deeper impact or greater cost lower down um, later on for the business. But I think a deeper why um, should really be that because you are a human being and because you are living here on this planet. So unless you have decided that you are never going to be in touch with any part of society, you decided that you're not going to live and live on this planet, then certainly I think you have an obligation almost to contribute 
to society to contribute to this planet or at the very least to do no harm. So that to me is the two whys. So that, that's a bit of a, an anti-shareholder value statement. Um, so the shareholder value, you know, the, the, the whole Milton Friedman, Friedman argument that the only thing that matters is the only purpose of the business is to create shareholder value. You're now, you're now saying there are other purposes. Um, okay. So um, this research has shown for the last, like, I don't know, 20 years. Okay. I, sorry, I can't, I can't like come out of research right now and I don't have it at hand. But um, what happens is if you look at the, look at the research, you find that ESG companies, companies who do bother to do some of these things, um, they grow in terms of value far more than companies who don't, the non-ESG. And actually investors are beginning to realize that because in the last COVID um, you know, crisis, overall investment was taken out uh, of the system. I think something that they lost 300%, if I don't remember wrongly, but ESG investments grew and they were the only sector that grew. So actually investors realize this, that you know, putting efforts and time on, this, um, on these kinds of conscious business grows shareholder value. So there's no conflict actually, totally no conflict. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've read similar research. So, so now this, 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 this begins to take us into a, a proper challenge. Whilst the evidence shows that, um, people don't necessarily believe that. So, so what, what do you do about that gap? Um, you know, here's the empirical evidence and, and here's your belief. How do you cross that bridge? I honestly say that I never try to convince somebody of something that they've convinced themselves otherwise. Because the nature of human beings is that no amount of evidence, no amount of statistics uh, can change the mind of a person whose mind has already been made up. It, it doesn't matter what area of human endeavor. I think that's equally true. Um, so my work really is about helping people who already have that realization, who already goes that, yes, we realize that this is true and we want to do something about it to look at how then can we operationalize this? Because it's a great idea, right? I want to do this, I want to do it, I want to do this. But at the end of the day, until and unless we can have the strategies, we can have the you know, processes in place, it will always be just an idea. It will just be a great idea. So that's really more my work, not really about changing people's minds. So. No, the people who have decided have decided. So it, where, where are the different impacts that you make? Um, so you talk about more than just shareholder value impact. So, so you know, can you, can you differentiate between the kind of impacts that you're talking about? Right, okay. So um, just, I just recently did um, a, a review of the latest literature. So a few things have actually uh, come up. So shareholder impact is one thing. They have found a consumer sentiment. Consumer sentiment is moving towards companies uh, who take care of their people, who take care of society, and who take care of the environment. So consumers are preferentially spending. And, and there's, I think McKinsey is the one who did the research to say that they can spend as much as two times or three times more for these companies uh, simply because of what they're doing. I mean, outside of the value of the product itself. Um, so in terms of sales, certainly I think that is one big um, you know, help that consumers prefer to do that. Uh, thirdly, in terms of retention of people, people prefer to work and there's actually higher engagement, higher sense of purpose um, and greater productivity from people uh, in these companies as compared to companies where, you know, my greatest purpose is to make money. Uh, I think people are not inspired by that kind of 
uh, mission statement. And so these companies actually get better talent and they get more of their talent. So that's the third thing. Um, the fourth thing is looking at supply chains. Um, so a lot of the work in um, ESG and also in conscious business is really about making sure of your supply chain. So for instance, uh, making sure that they are all environmentally compliant or compliant to minimum human rights um, standards and so on. And when COVID hit, these supply chains are much more resilient simply because the companies are much more aware of who and where they are getting these things from. And because of that, um, these companies' supply chains were much more resilient to COVID impact and much more um, intact after the initial wave has hit um, that, and they were able to continue to supply. So if you think about, just, just think about the four things that you need to do business, right? You need money, investors are willing to invest in you. You need, you know, obviously people who, clients and customers, they're more willing to spend with you. You need people to do the work and employees are much more likely to come. And lastly, you need raw materials. Well, your supply chains are much more assured. So no matter which aspect, the impact of doing this is actually quite great. So that's and and that's, that's, that's really good. That's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful breakdown. So and you're based in Singapore. So what, what's the appetite for this within, within the Singapore business ecosystem at the moment? Not very high. <laughs> really, I think this is much more... Uh, okay, so the initiative came initially from US. Um, and then I think Europe has kind of adopted it. I've even spoken to people in, uh, in you know, Australia, New Zealand, Australia, Asia. But in Asia, it's like, oh, why are we doing this? You know, what is wrong? You know, what's wrong with just making money for making money's sake? And there is very little. I mean, I've spoken to quite a few people and gotten a lot of um, just pure cynicism around the whole idea. A lot of people think, oh, this is just Westerners being, you know, coming up with this very airy idea and it's not going to work and that kind of thing. So no, I would say that the, you know, the acceptance here is very, very low. Do you think, I'm going to ask Oscar a question, which is, which is rare. Oscar, do you think that's true of Hong Kong as well? <laughs> well, of course, the show is not about me, right? But um, I do see similarities, but I mean, I, it, it's very contextual and uh, I'd like to hear your viewpoint as well, Serene, on this, is that people are, I mean, Asia in general, this is of course a big area, has been um, in development. I mean, they they were they were behind uh, into the Western and uh, with Europe and US and Australia for, for a while. So I would say, yes, maybe that there's one reason why they are also being so pragmatic or practical in terms of, hey, we need to pay the bills. Um, Hong Kong, especially, it is extremely expensive and that kind of creates this environment. Well, we can't really think beyond this because we need to, just need to pay bills and that's number one priority. So that's my experience in Hong Kong. So, But I'm also curious about you, Serene, being based in uh, uh, Singapore, which is also one of the, the most developed cities on the planet, why that actually is, because it's not on the developed anymore. Now, if you talk about Philippines or Thailand or uh, Indonesia, certain areas, of course, I understand, okay, they are going for the same phase. But what are the barriers in, in S Singapore that you described uh, that are in place? Um, well, I think firstly, um, there's almost a, I don't want to explain this to you. I think maybe because we developed a bit too quickly 
there's almost a lag in the mental state compared to the developmental stage. Actually, not just Singapore. I see this in China as well. It's like we are a developed country, but uh, we still have this sense of deprivation and sense of, oh, we've got to catch up with the world. Oh, we know we've got to. So I think that mental state hasn't quite caught up yet. That's the first thing. Um, secondly, as you've also mentioned, I think Singapore is the most expensive city in the world. Uh, so the need to pay bills is enormous. Um, and the average Singaporean is asset rich and cash poor. Um, so the, the kind of debt that they carry is actually fairly high. The third thing, um, as far as business climate is concerned, uh, probably most of you realize that the government has, um, the government in Singapore cast a very strong shadow on the business and economic you know, areas. So they, they, have, they do a lot to interfere with business. And traditionally, they've always been um, pro-business rather than pro-worker. So if you think about the very traditional sort of left-right um, thinking, they are very, very pro-business. And as a result, this has created a whole business environment where um, everything is very pro-business and there's very little worker consideration. That is slowly changing as workers become much more you know, strident and much more capable of just leaving Singapore and going somewhere else. But I find that that still is true in Singapore, that the whole climate is very pro-business so that they don't consider about other things, not even like worker welfare, for example. Um, so these are some of the, I think traditionally uh, where we are. And right now um, we are in, we're almost in a state of flux uh, because as you know, um, we've just gone through a big uh, crisis and one of the things we realized is that, you know, in the past we chased all of uh, food production out of Singapore and then we realized, oh, we can't, you know, we can't just depend on importing all our food. So there is almost a sense of we can't just only look at the bottom line anymore. There is a real impact from you know, what is the most money-making business we can bring into Singapore? Or obviously, that's not farming, so let's get rid of farming and bring in high-tech. And then suddenly, we realize, oh, wait, high-tech can't be eaten. So I think right now, there is a real change that I can see. Whether that change ends up being, you know, we got to take care of our people more, we got to take care of um, environmental more, that remains to be seen. But the way you're framing this, and it's quite interesting because you say pro-business and conscious business is almost as if they're separate things, which, which, which shouldn't be the case, of course, because pro-business and conscious business should, should be interrelated. But I'm just wondering if, if, you're, if you're talking about a developmental shift from seeing everything in very linear terms, okay, this equals that, to sort of looking at, at the complexity of, of the work being done and the multiplicity of outputs. So, so that you're beginning to, to see a far more complex picture of the, the relationship between business and society and people and how they all need to be looked after rather than just what, bring the money in at the top. Is, does, is that a fair uh, assumption? Yes, I, I think um, I bring probably pro-business, pro-worker is probably not the best way to say it. But um, I, if you think of like, frame it as a traditional Marxist kind of, uh, you know, confrontation, right? Um, you know, the bourgeoisie and the polyvirate, that's, that was what I had more in mind. Um, but as you say, it's that exactly. So in previously, what we were looking at was GDP. I can tell you very bluntly, that is all about the GDP. 
And now we are kind of realizing that, hey, you know, it's not just about the GDP. So similarly to business, right? In the past, when we say, when I say pro-business, it's literally about how much money can we bring in? How much GDP can we get? Uh, but now it's not that anymore. And so there's a similar shift to multiple outcomes, multiple KPIs, rather than just the money. Yeah. Mm. So one of so so you talked, and one of the things I'm interested around is, is you've got you, you talked about the employing people, and you talked about um, consumers. Well, employees and consumers are the same people. Um, so so the employee in the organisation is also a consumer of the organisation. Um, so, so is that thinking sort of central to, to what you're, you're talking about? That we've got to imagine, we've got to imagine that, that, um, that, that the way we treat employees and the way we treat consumers is one and the same thing. And without looking after both, we don't actually have a business anymore. Does that sort of frame the kind of stuff that, that you're looking at? Well, yes. I mean, for me, that is a part of it. But I can tell you that right now, um, there aren't many businesses I'm in contact with that think of it that way. Uh, because for me, it's this um, conscious business always starts with your own people. Because there is just no way. Um, look, if I am dying from the workload and I am anxious and, and you know depressed, when will I ever make a decision that will benefit society or from or you know the planet? So it always starts from the employees. It always starts from that. And then obviously these people will then be the consumers. So being like what impact we make on society really depends on what impact we make on the people. But I mean, I am in agreement with you there and I don't see it happening right now. That's all I can say. So, so again, so to take the devil's advocate, if I'm, if I'm a, a, a senior leader in, in a Singaporean business and I've had the benefit of all of the great schools and the great education and, and, why should I care about what my employees think? No. Um, for many, many years, we have had this constant um, employee shortage. And for Singapore businesses, that is a, is a constant struggle to get talent into the company. Um, and that's also the reason why we have so many you know, foreigners in Singapore who have just come to get a job because there's too many jobs and not enough people. Uh, right now with this COVID, we can't even bring foreigners in anymore. And so now this is, these are the people you have left, right? These are the people that are here. Um, and as a senior leader, if you want to develop your business, I would say that going forward, people will be the most important aspect. Um, because in the past, you know, probably machinery production is the most important aspect, but as work gets more and more complex, um, a lot of this machinery, I mean, a lot of simple stuff can be done by machinery. So the people then become your competitive advantage, right? Whether or not they are able to um, perform and give you something different from a machine that everyone can buy. And that then becomes the most important. Uh, so if they don't care about their people, I don't actually see that their business is going to last much longer because somebody else with that competitive advantage is going to come and take it, take their lunch. So, so here's where I see that you're 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 talking about a similar problem to Hong Kong in in that that you know you're you're a smaller city than Hong Kong, but not but neither Hong Kong nor Singapore have, in world terms, a massive number of people to draw off. So I think it's sort of seven point one million and four point something million in Singapore's case, and you need to be bringing in 
you either need to be developing people to do the work or bringing in people to do the work and, and probably both. So, so what are you seeing um, in, in Singapore? To, to, because obviously with COVID, you can't do the, the, the bringing people in. So, so what are you seeing in Singapore to start developing people? Because I, I, there's things I see that you're doing that we're not doing in Hong Kong, but I just wonder, you know, from on the ground level, what are you, what's the experience? Well, I think for the last probably 15, 20 years, they have been really trying to develop people. So there's a whole government board whose job is just to continue to develop people after they have graduated from. So it's called adult learning. And they have been trying really, really, really hard to develop not just people who are actually working right now, but everyone, right? Even if they're retired, even if you're, you know, um, stay-at-home mother, whoever it is, as long as you want to come, we will, we will, you know, develop it. Um, to the extent of they subsidize it 90%, uh, they pay people who are unemployed to go to school. Um, not like a massive amount, but like I think $30, $40 a day to cover your expenses and food. Um, they pay companies the salary of anybody that they send uh, to go. Um, and they give companies awards, like the, you know, cash sums uh, to encourage them to do this. Uh, and right now, at the moment, because there's been a lot of layoffs last year, uh, they have programs where you can go and you know, learn a new industry for a year and they pay you, I think, 1000 to a, a month. So they've really been trying very, very hard to reskill these people. And I think you walk to any Singaporean and ask them you know, uh, about upgrading or reskilling, they all know. They all know the need. They all want to do it. Uh, the, where the gap really lies is in two things. Uh, the first is that um, I feel that the training, I mean, in all fairness, I think they try their best. But as you probably know from graduating from universities, what you're trained in and what you need in the workplace doesn't necessarily match. And especially when the workplace changes very rapidly. Uh, so a lot of these things that they teach and they come out and they use, so for example, let's say in digital marketing, it's not something that's immediately usable. And therefore, there is still a gap where companies need to bridge. So they have some basic knowledge, they come out, they still need to train. Uh, and for most companies, they're happy training fresh grads. But if you are a mid-career person, you're 45, 50 years old, and you come in and you still need that kind of training, uh, there is a lot of you know, resistance and preconceptions to it. And people are just not willing to do it, honestly. That's the, that's the first issue. Um, the second thing is, I think they have tried and thrown in like massive amounts of money to increase the productivity of Singapore. And our productivity increment is, okay, let's just say it's insignificant. I won't say there's no increment, but it's just insignificant compared to the amount of money that they've dumped into this issue. Uh, and so when you have a population that's not growing, I mean, we are about 7 million as well, but we are not really growing anymore. We are the, we have the lowest replacement rate by far of the entire world. Okay? And, and you cannot get more out of them through productivity and reskilling. Then you are stuck. You're stuck, basically. Um, and my way of thinking, which is so far nobody has in the government has agreed, is the problem starts earlier. The problem starts with our education system. Our education system was created in the 70s to create production workers. And let me tell you this, it is brilliant at doing that. 
it creates people who will listen, take instructions, sit there for long periods of time, have basic mathematical and language ability, and are able to do complex, like for example, machinery and, and engineering. So the problem is we no longer have production factories in Singapore. We have basically you know, almost chased out everything because it's way cheaper in Vietnam, in China. And what we have now are very high-tech industries, biomed, genomics, uh, AI, and so on all of which require extremely complex um, thinking, critical um, decision-making, um, as well as creativity. But the education system does not breed that. So there is, if you spend 20 years grooming somebody to be a pair of hands at a production line, no amount of adult education later is going to bring back the creativity and critical thinking skills that you didn't manage to teach. You know? And I think they realize this and they have been trying to kind of tweak the education system, but the, okay, the education system in Singapore is sacrosanct almost. Okay, there's a lot invested in it. I'm sure it's the same in Hong Kong. I mean, parents invest an enormous amount of time, effort, and money into making their children succeed academically. And if, you, if they swap that academic system out and put another one in, they are going to have a riot of parents, basically. All the parents are going to be up in arms going like, what, you know, what have we been doing for the last five years? Grooming my kid and now you change the, you know, you, you change the game on me. Not only that, uh, there are a lot of teachers, educators who are all invested in this. And the average education minister is about five years, I think. So if you are the education minister, would you change it? And knowing that you are basically making the entire country against you, you're never going to get re-elected, you know? The whole country, every parent, every educator will be against you. But ultimately, if we don't do that, then the kind of people that we are breeding to use is not usable in the current economy. And you get all these people who get graduated and they're like, uh, okay, I mean... This, this is what I see, but if you ask me what's the solution, I'm sorry. I also don't know what the solution is. So it, it's interesting. There's two, two, two things that, that, that I know of that sort of relate to this. So one, I, I had a friend in, in Singapore whose daughter uh, was in tears after an English exam and they because she only got 50%, um, and they asked me to look at the paper uh, and sort of try and help her. And um, the, it was very ambiguous. I mean, the answers she gave could have been right but they weren't the answers on the teacher's score sheet. So, so you know, even though she's, she's trying to explore ambiguity and, and, and she's, being, she's being punished for it, you know, that's wrong, um, which, which of course is hugely problematic. Once you internalize that, then you're like, I'm, you, you become scared of, of even trying to do something that, that's, that's slightly different from, from the main. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is China has just changed their, how they evaluate children. So rather than just sort of the maths and, and, and the science and stuff, now the children have to be good at sport and art. And of course, the parents have all gone, oh, you know, we've just spent all this money investing in tutoring in maths and English. And now they've got to be good at um, stuff that we've stopped paying. So, so China is doing it. And then we, we've got to look at, at as being these two developed cities in the region. 
going, well, if, if, if China's doing it, <coughs> um, that's a bit of a problem because all the, all the work could end up going to China at some point in the future. So, so there's that, that necessity to respond. Um, and, and I would hope that that puts some urgency in, into at least governments thinking that, that there's this, 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 this it, it is going on elsewhere in the region now. I, I know quite a few people from the Ministry of Education, and I can tell you honestly, they've sent people to study every education system in the world, like, you know, Finland, Germany, um, everything that seems to work. They've sent people out to study it. They've brought back ideas. Uh, they've looked at 21 century competency. They've tried to incorporate um, critical thinking skills and so on and so forth. The issue is a lot of it stems from a let's tweak the thing towards this way rather than let's pull the rug out and start with a new rug, which actually I think is what we need. Um, and to be frank, more on this sort of ambiguity and so on. Yes, uh, in Singapore, there is a correct answer for everything, even when there is no really correct answer. Okay. But the issue then becomes, the moment you teach people to question and to think and to start to, you know, in a sense, foment dissent, there are social implications. And quite apart from that, I mean, I'm not gonna go down the route of government is brainwashing us and you know, just to make us into quiet sheep, um, that we have a lot of internal tensions. I mean, we have different religions. Um, we have, you know, neighboring countries that have, um, you know, terrorism organizations and so on. And the moment that you start to tell people that this may not be right and there are other rights, uh, there are inherent social dangers um, that I think, um, you know, it's one of those things whereby I don't know whether you'll blow up or you won't blow up, uh, but it might, right? Because there are already people who think that Singapore is not right and then join terrorist organizations. What is going to happen if we actually tell them much more about, you know, there's nothing is actually right. There are two sides to everything, you know, there could be other truths and so on. I mean, will that create more? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. All I can tell you is uh, from uh, I think from a governmental point of view, if I was the government, I wouldn't dare to take the risk. I'm very frank with you. I wouldn't dare to take the risk, you know. Um, but in terms of you know the education system, I think it needs much more than a tweak. But it's uh, this morning I was just having a discussion on our topic. It's a question of guts. Really, at the end of the day, it's a question of guts. Who dares win, right? So who dares? That's the issue. I'm going to ask you a difficult question then, uh, Serene, because on the one hand, you say, okay, we need to have this intervention, right? Because the, the current tweaking is, is not getting us anywhere. Um, on the other hand, you describe, hey, well, there's, there's the real challenge. If, if there are multiple perspectives and, and viewpoints to, to a single uh, concept or idea, um, which you say is not recommended to kind of, if that happens, that this could really you know, blow up. So where do you, if, if that's the case, right, because they seem fairly opposing to me, how would you suggest to kind of find a middle way in that, if there is a middle way, or what, 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 what do you suggest here? Well, I have... I guess I have my own, I, I used to be an educator, so I have my own very fixed ideas about what education should look like. Um, but 
I agree with you. Um, I put it this way. I think I, when I say I, if I'm the government, I wouldn't dare do it. I would put it this way, which is that I see that there is a need to make a change. Um, the choice is between, uh, you know, making small tweaks that's not really working versus, you know, totally changing the system and facing relative unknowns, right? It could go very well, it could go very badly. Um, and I'm not saying that it doesn't need to be done. I actually think it needs to be done, but probably somebody braver than me needs to do it. Um, also, yes, it's true. I think, I think I won't have the guts. I, don't know, I think I won't have the guts. Someone braver needs to do this, okay? Um, and in terms of the education system, my almost like my vision, it's literally like my vision for businesses, which is I hope to see each person who enters education, each child, uh, to be able to discover their own capabilities and strength and be groomed to develop that to the best way possible. So, you know, I think every child has innate gifts. And right now what we are doing is we are giving a one-size-fits-all. But that's really not possible, you know. And each person should be, it should be structured so that each person will get to the information and the um, almost like the training necessary for them to bloom into the kind of person that they can possibly be. So that's my vision, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we would align with, with that in the way that we think around uh, how you develop people. To, to, so, so, so there's a difference between developing, you know, exceptional skills in some areas of life to well-rounded mediocrities. And I think our, our current systems, and not, not, not just the education system, but even the way we promote people in organisations, it's, a, it, it's oh, have you got these 15 different competencies at an average level? Um, versus are you brilliant at this bit and can we tap into your brilliance? And so that, so that one, of, one of the interesting challenges that, that, that I think this is causing, this, this well-rounded mediocrity thing is in order to get promoted, in order to get through the system, you know, you've got to become at least competent thing, at things that you're not very good at. Um, so you end up spending an awful lot of your time studying or training in stuff that you hate and you don't you don't want to be good at it doesn't engage you it doesn't interest you and almost no time in spending spending on the stuff you're talented at and engages you and 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 so we end up with people in these well, you know, well-rounded mediocrities who are doing stuff they don't like in order to succeed rather than brilliant people doing stuff that they do like in order to succeed. I see that everywhere, not just not just in Asia, but across the world. Are you seeing that in, in, in Singapore as, as sort of the core problem? And, and for me, it results in massive mental health challenges because that's my life is doing stuff I hate all the time. You know, is, is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? And I think one of the issues is, the biggest fear is this, that by the time they've gone through this 20 years uh, mediocrity training, when they emerge out into the workplace as, a, as, a, as an adult, they have no idea what their strengths is. I mean, the number of young people that I talk to who have no idea what their strength is, who have no idea what their best competency is, is shocking, it's shocking. Right? So I think a school system should help you discover your strength and competency, not rub it out so hard that you don't even know what your strengths and competencies are. And so you get this whole bunch of people, they're not just doing their, you know, at least I feel that if I know what I'm best at, 
but I still have to do a bit of the rest. I, I can compromise, right? Because now I know I'm best at this. I'll try and shine in this area. The problem is people who just are mediocre in everything and have no freaking idea what they're good at. And that's, that is where these people, like, you know, we were just talking a bit earlier about these people going to work and being like zombies, right? Because all they know is to put their, you know, put their shoulder to the grind and just get it done. You know, even, because I don't know where else I can do better. I don't know how else I can shine. It's not a, um, I mean, the way you describe here, I mean, is that unusual? I, I would say it, it, it takes time, right, to kind of, explore what you're good at nice. um if i look back at my own career i've done different things um you as you were describing your your own background you've you've been able to explore multiple uh, disciplines so but do, do you think that's a problem a real problem for for singapore um well, I don't think it's a problem for singapore i think it's for many countries in the world which is Look, you, we enter uh, the education system at one and a half years of age. And we typically graduate at about be, sometime between 20 and 25 years of age. So you have about 20 years in the system. And all this exploration can easily be done in 20 years, right? I mean, by the time you are graduating and then trying to hop jobs and trying to figure out what actually you are good at, uh, it's a bit late. Right? And not just, is, is it a bit late? It looks horrible on your resume, right? Next person is going to ask, why are you hopping jobs out so much? Because what happens is we have given, we have, we have been given 20 years of a person's life and then just squandered it. So can you imagine if I gave you exposure to different areas in 20 years? Think of the amount of investment and resources that the education system has. Uh, look, if I am an institute, I can easily say, call a chemist to come down and you know do something about chemistry that helps kids understand about chemistry. I can call a uh, you know an engineer to come down. I can do that. Can I do that as a company? No. Can you do that as an individual? Yes, but really hard. Right? But as an education institute, you know, the the I have the capacity to do it. Why are we not doing it? You know, why are we not? exposing our children to real careers, real problems, letting them have a chance to see where it is. So I think in my mind, at least, this is what education should look like. When you're really, really young, it should really be about building your um, basic uh, mental capacity. Uh, no, it's not like skills, the mental capacity, your creativity, your emotional intelligence. Your, so building all of these things. As you come into seven or so, uh, it should be building about your basic skills. So everybody needs to be literate, I think, and have arithmetic. Um, some simple ability to do critical thinking. But that's, I think, where it is. And then this chance to explore different areas of knowledge. And when you reach into your teenage years, it should really be about, here is a real life problem. How would you solve it? You know, liars with businesses to give them real issues in the world to solve with the guidance of a mentor or a lecturer who can then, you know, provide them with the skills and knowledge that they don't currently yet possess. So that by the time I'm 25 and I go out into the world, A, I know exactly what I'm good at. B, I have had real experience solving real problems. And, you know, so I'm not this dumb person who now the company needs to, to you know, bridge the gap of my naivety anymore. At least this is, so this is kind of like my ideal world. 
So I, I want to tie this into, so, so you're now talking about a conscious awareness of self, okay? Uh, and you started off talking about conscious business. So here, here we have a wonderful, you know, so conscious business is, is, here's the four impacts that you talked about. So, so you know, how do we make money? How do we make money? How do we get materials? How do we contribute? How do we, how do we get consumer sentiment? How do we get people? And now you're talking about conscious education and conscious awareness of self as part of this overall package. So what I wonder is, are, are we need? is it actually the management and leadership discourse um, of this is a competent, you need, you need wide competencies across everything to get up the ladder rather than, is that the problem? Is, is it sort of this old fashioned production based leadership discourse that's causing all, all, the, all the, the challenges? And should we be reimagining the leadership discourse in, in places like Singapore and, and Hong Kong so that we can perceive the consciousness in a very different way? Um, I, I think I agree with you um, that we need to reimagine leadership. Um, I've, I believe we've had this discussion that leadership development is one of the most time uh, one of the most useless endeavors of businesses that we are not really developing business and I agree with you. Um, but I think um, a lot of leadership development should be more about personal growth, almost personal enlightenment, put it that way uh, because I I wonder whether we can really tell people what competencies are needed to lead organizations into the future. I think it is arrogant of lecturers to say that we can predict and, and teach. But I think what it is, is this ability of the individual to almost be enlightened, to grow into the kind of leader that they need to grow into. Um, and what we can give, or rather what I hope that you know, leadership development causes can give, is a greater aspiration. It's, it's an aspiration of not just that, oh, we must go out there and meet our KPIs and get the bottom line done, but it's an aspiration of how can I go out there and grow people, you know, benefit humanity and save this planet. Really, that's where true leadership is, right? To lead us into a new era, not it's not about how can I better manage my day-to-day -day KPIs and hit all my numbers. I don't think that is that's leadership. But as to what exact competencies each person needs to reach that level, um, I, I mean, uh, having been an educator, I think I don't presume to uh, say that I know. You know. So what, Richard, you need to be able to accomplish that may be very different from what Oscar needs or what I need. And how are we going to say we're going to teach you when I don't even, when maybe you don't even know. And as the world comes out, you may realize I need competencies I didn't have before. But that aspiration, I think, should still be there. And I believe we can. Sorry. Go yeah, on. I mean, you're, you're going into now, um, I think, where leadership is moving. And, and I'll be very interested to see what you think Singapore is in this. So leadership is now, it, it's not no longer going to be about um, how do you motivate uh, the people who work for you and it's going to be no longer about just you know having this widespread uh, range of competencies it's going to be about the complexity of thinking that you have the ability that you can the, the ability you have to get other people to contribute 
to, to complex situation solving. I mean, you, you've got to probe a situation. You've got to get multiple brains involved. You've got to lose the ego and the power and the authority to, to recognize that you've got all of these talents contributing in, in this in this, this complex dialogical way um, in order to solve these complex problems, which means a flattening of structures. It means a distribution of leadership, though it's not just an authority based. So I, I don't see a massive appetite for that uh, in Hong Kong. I wonder if there's more of an appetite for that in Singapore or, or not. I mean, again, it's not just Hong Kong and Singapore. I mean, it, it, it's everywhere. The idea of distributing leadership across an organization is challenging to to people but but i would just wonder where where you see singapore being there because that that for me is where developed cities need to go uh, i agree with you i think we are very low down on that chain um this is the conversation i had a couple of months back which is um you probably realize that singapore's government system is fairly authoritarian um, it's, it's benign authoritarian, but it's still authoritarian. And a lot of the, um, okay, so we have one of the weirdest uh, developed country economies, I think, in the world. All of the biggest MNCs in Singapore uh, that are grown from within Singapore are all government-linked companies. So if you look at any other developed economy, like for example, US, all the biggest companies like Google and you know, Amazon, they're all developed by private equity. But our biggest companies in Singapore are all government-linked um, companies. So we are a developed economy with not very many uh, big um, you know, private companies. So as a result, all these people who sit on top of the business eclan, a lot of them, I tell you very frankly, they are they're brought in from the army. So when these army generals, they, they retire, they are then helicoptered in. Um, and some of them are helicoptered in from government and so on. And they are very used to authoritarian um, forms of leadership. So actually, I would say our leadership is, in many companies, the leadership is patriarchal. I won't say authoritarian. I would say it's patriarchal. It's... I do my best for my people because I know the best for my people. That's how it works. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's by no means, you know, mal uh, malevolent, but it's not that kind of distributed. And I think we have a long way more to go. A long way. Probably more than Hong Kong, right? Hong Kong, at least people go, go and riot in Singapore. I cannot imagine that happening. Where do you see the, the, the future of, of, of leadership going? I mean, you kind of already picked into this. Uh, Richard men mentioned as well the, the sort of uh, the, the macro trends. But from your experience uh, uh, in being in Singapore, what do you see happening? Of, or what do you hope uh, to see uh, in the next sort of, say, 10, 20 years? Um, I think I agree, Richard, in the sense that leadership will get more and more distributed. Not so much be because the people on top want to you know, distribute the power, but because the people below no longer want to be part of the system. And we are seeing that in Singapore, that a lot of the young people just simply do not go into organizations. They would rather do, I mean, freelancing or, you know, sort of part of the gig economy. Um, in, over here, the gig um, economy hasn't 
developed to the extent that it is able to you know, feed people well and that kind of thing. But eventually, I think it will. And when it does, all this organizational power uh, will just lose its effect simply because there's no one for you to, there's no one for you to exert power anymore. People are opting out of the system. And this is where I see it going, um, probably exacerbated by the fact that a lot of people now work from home. And if you push this work from home concept a bit further, you realize that working from home means I can literally be employed anywhere in the world. So it will come to be a situation where if I don't like the leadership in Singapore, well, too bad. I will just go to another organization in another country. And when you level the playing field to that extent that you know I can lose my people to anyone in this world, then the companies that have this, that realize this is what the Gen Zs and the, Gen, uh, the millennials people want, they are going to win. They're going to win the game. And you know what are you going to do to stop these people? They, they don't even have to leave Singapore. Right? Previously, one of the big problems is my friends are here, my family is here, I don't want to go to another country. Now I don't want to leave. I stay home. You know, I, can, I can work somewhere else. I can go to another organization. And then there will also be more and more people who will... Uh, I, I see this as going forward. Going forward, um, the gig economy people will probably gang up together and say we will have like a guild, right? That's what medieval times we had, maybe a guild of accountants, a guild of, you know, graphic designers. And then the guild will then, um, you know, act against uh, organizations. So you want to use uh, designers? Yes, well, then the guild will act and will negotiate on behalf of designers. So the ability of organization to just say that I'm only going to give you this amount of money, you've got to do this kind of work, will be very much reduced because then um, you know the designers would then say no this is the kind of work we want to do and if you don't like it it's just too bad the guild will not like you know you can get these like you know little people out there but the guild which is like 80 percent of all designers will not work for you and you know fly guide <laughs> really and that's where i see uh, leadership or actually organizational organizations developing whether i see this in this lifetime i don't know i hope so I mean, I, I've heard other people make exactly the same arguments, Reen, that, that, that there's going to be a guild, a sort of reimagination of guilds at that, 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 that talent level. And, and that then will require the, re, the reimagination of leadership in order to, to work out how the interaction between a sort of a guild-like talent and, and, and keeping organisations going. And that's going to require... Um, that 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 wider societal kind of you know we're not going to work for you unless and unless that you, you're sustainable and unless that you you, you contribute to the to mental well-being and all of this kind of stuff um and and again i don't i don't want to think say this is just singapore and hong kong that are struggling with this i mean this is everywhere that this is going to happen and, and maybe maybe hong kong and singapore are a few years behind some other places but they're probably a few years ahead of other places as well so so that this is the wrestle um so that, so the question is now you know what 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 can we do to to, to accelerate um this and it's a very big question you know how how do we how do we accelerate reimagination of leadership specifically in this region because it's a big jump um, from, from where lots of things are to, to that kind of future. And I think, again, specifically Hong Kong and, and, and Singapore, as the two developed 
small economies in the region, it, it's, it's up to them to go there because otherwise they risk becoming irrelevant. Um, I, okay, I will probably scale down your question because how can we, I have no idea, but I can tell you what am I personally trying to do to reach that. Um, so for me, it's two things, right? The first is coaching. Uh, so I reach out, um, or rather business leaders reach out to me uh, for this conscious leadership, um, really about coaching them to implement it in their daily, you know, implement it in their daily work. Um, you know, what in this, how, how can I reimagine my own work and my own decision-making uh, in order to get this conscious business going? Um, and that is in forms of coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching with individual business leaders. And as I stated earlier, I don't try to, you know, convince people who are not convinced of it. These are people who are already convinced and simply looking for a way to operationalize it. That's the first thing. The second thing is I do management consultancy with organizations. And these are usually um, founders or business owners who want to do this in their entire organization. I, I want to transform my organization. Come and work with me and look at how we can transform this organization uh, it may not be like what we have imagined this guild or gig economy or whatever, but at least right now, what can I do, you know, to transform my people uh, for, you know, better wellness uh, in the, in, within the organization? How can I build uh, my people up better? How can I make a better social impact, better environmental impact? Um, so in terms of management consulting, that's what I do. And it's it's literally like trying to, you know, clear the clear the ocean with a bucket right it's like one bucket and one bucket and one bucket um but at the moment in time this is what i can do so i feel that you know in my own small way i try to push it and i guess you know it's probably same like what you're thinking if all of us kind of push a little bit at a time maybe you'll reach the tipping point faster is what i i see it um and i've actually had this conversation with quite a few friends I don't see that this conscious business thing may be something in my lifetime, but even if it's not in my lifetime and it's in my kids or even in my kids' kids' lifetime, I think I feel that this is an important enough cause for me to spend my time just kind of pushing it, pushing it for the rest of my life. Just even if it's just a little bit, right? Everybody contributes just a little bit. And hopefully we'll empty out the ocean is the way I look at it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you've, now you've downscaled the question, I'm going to re-upscale it again. So the last question <laughs> we ask everyone, um, it, and we call it the $9 trillion question. And, and, and you've already sort of um, uh, preempted this with your, your comment that the productivity uh, improvements in Singapore are, are almost flatlining. That's not just Singapore. That, that's all countries that are, that are, uh, are pretty digitalized and, and doing that kind of work they are no longer able to, 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 to improve their productivity because we're shifting from an industrial to a, a, a complex digital kind of world and there's a different type of work that needs to be done. And we, we, would, we argue that it, it costs probably nine trillion of lost revenue across the OECD. So this, this is what we, we, we think organizations can regain. Um, if people listen to Serene and you didn't have to persuade them, they just went, Serene, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, what what kind of Singapore will will emerge from it? Um, I think it's okay. So right now, 
and like 50 years down in the future. So two different things. So I think right now, if we can get people to step beyond, I mean, so literally talking about uh, things like critical thinking and so to step beyond just doing this one by one. Um, and I see that as the ability to reimagine work and business um, to a kind of almost fluid situation where, where everybody can you know, contribute the best that they can, um, you know, do the work that you enjoy, you know, be properly rewarded for it, uh, do something that is really your strength, and at the same time, be able to contribute to the business and contribute to society and the world. So that's right now. But I also hope that that's what we discussed about education, that we will groom the next generation of people to come up and do even more than this. You know, do not just you know, do business as usual and help the world, but literally reverse the damage we've done to the world. And we see young people doing this, right? Remember the guy who has like taken plastics uh, out of the ocean, right? I mean, how, how old was he when he started? 17, I think, or 15. Right? So we see young people emerging who have this capability, not just to save the world, but to restore the world. And I think if we start right now to groom these people and bring them into their strength, uh, in 50 years time, that's a real possibility that we really can see um, people reversing all of the damage that we have done uh, whether it is damage on societies or the racism, the whatever ism that you have, um, the mental wellness, the physical damage that people have, uh, or damage on the planet. Um, I Maybe I'm an eternal optimist. We've had this discussion before about this. Uh, you know, I'm an eternal, eternal idealist, uh, but I feel that really we see this in bits and pieces, like one young person doing this, one young person doing this, one young person doing this. Um, you know, the guy who invented uh, the prostate cancer um, in test. And I'm asking myself, you know, what kind of power can these young people have if everyone was given a chance to really bloom, to really blossom? And can you imagine the kind of world that will exist in 50 years' time if every child was given this opportunity to really, you know, contribute and when we say contribute, contribute in a sense that is in the highest aspiration, right? Really contribute the humanity to the planet. So that's almost like you know, my dream. I'm not sure if you're an optimist as, as so much as, as a business romantic, because that that's that's a, a wonderful picture to paint, and, and and I think that could be quite inspiring. Um, so thank you for the answer. I think it's a great uh, contribution, Serene. Um, I, it's been a, yeah, a fascinating um, interview we had today. I'd like to thank you both, uh, Richard, as well. And I hope to see you soon again. Yes, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.